Luke chapter 6 verses 1 to 16. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields and his disciples began to pick some heads of grain, rub them on their hands and eat the kernels. Some of the Pharisees asked, why, why are you doing that unawful thing to the Sabbath? Jesus answered them, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and taking the consecrated bread, he ate what is lawfully for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then Jesus said to them, the son of of man is lord of the sabbath on another sabbath he went into the synagogue and was teaching a man was there whose right hand was shriveled the pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse jesus so they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the sabbath but jesus knew that what knew what they were thinking and said to the man to the man with the shriveled hand, get up and stand in front of every everyone. So he, so he got up and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? He looked around at them all and then said to the man, stretch out your hand. He did so, and his hand was completely restored. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were furious and began to discuss with one another what, to, what they might do to Jesus. One of those days, Jesus went out to the mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them whom he also designated apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. How special was that? I encourage you, if, uh, if you know Graham and Sarah, or even if you don't, uh, drop them a line and just tell them uh, how grateful uh, you are uh, for their ministry and for sharing that lovely update with us. Uh, while we're getting our uh, slides uh, worked out, um, I think I made a mistake and accidentally created a, another presentation, so we're gonna, they're going to have to switch that. While that's happening, uh, I'm going to let you know that today, as we're talking about the Sabbath, uh, this was a book written by A.J. Swoboda. It's called Subversive Sabbath. That's a tongue twister. <laughs> Subversive Sabbath. It's called The Surprising Power of Rest in a Nonstop World. This was uh, one of the top listed Christian books a couple years ago, uh, put out by either Christianity Today or the Gospel Coalition. Uh, I'm going to leave this at the back table after the service. If you're interested in doing a dive into the, the Sabbath and what it means for Christians today, 
uh, and looking at that, you can take a look at this book. Please don't take it with you. Take a look, and if you want it or can't get it, we will uh, work out how we can help source that for you. Uh, we are in Luke chapter 6, uh, verses 1 to 16, and uh, before we get into the text today, I just want to say... I'm really sad that you have to be wearing masks this morning. <laughs> uh, it's, uh, I know it's good, I know it's healthy, and, and it's good for all of us, and that's, you know, I, I, I can appreciate that. Um, at the same time, uh, there's a bit of a sense of a, oh, uh, and I don't know about you, but it, it hit me a little bit hard this week, uh, particularly on Thursdays, we were getting ready to hold this, uh, com- this gathering for the combined churches in the Hawkesbury. I was looking forward to having brothers and sisters together and us all singing together and visiting. And then that day it shut down. It's like, oh, we're not supposed to do that. But it took my mind back to some of the things that we were saying about 12 months ago. I don't know if you remember this, but when everything came to a halt, if you went around and, or called somebody or talked to somebody and, and asked them uh, how they're going, you probably would have heard something like this. Oh, it's just, I didn't realize how much I needed to stop. It's so good. It's good to just stop. Do you remember that? Did you say that? Were you one of those people who were like, oh, I didn't realize I needed this. I didn't realize I, I needed to just slow down. And shortly afterwards, everyone was saying, you know, when, when things go back to normal, I don't want things to go back to the way they were. But have they? Have we just ramped right back up? I don't know about you, but I feel like I have. It's really, really hard to be still. There is a lot to be learned about the idea of being a creature (laughs) who needs rest. And if the Creator needed rest, how much more do we need that rest as well? As we come to Luke chapter 6, it's this concept of rest and this concept of Sabbath that is very much playing on uh, the scene that is developing. But while it's important that we understand the Sabbath, we also need to understand that the issue that's causing the conflict is not really the Sabbath. It's often, often the issue that people are fighting about isn't really the issue. The real issue is below the surface, one or two layers down. And here, in this case, while the matter being discussed is the Sabbath, and we're going to get into that, the real issue is the authority of Jesus. And it raises the question for us, how do we hear Jesus? How are we hearing the gospel of Christ. Is this a message that we listen to like a favorite song? Oh, I just, I just want to recapture that feeling and I'm just going to listen to a bit of Jesus right now. Do we hear Jesus as giving us advice, as sort of the guru or the trusted counselor where I have a problem I can't seem to fix. Maybe I'll go to Jesus and he'll instruct me. Or do we hear the gospel as something that is authoritative? Do we hear the gospel as the proclamation of a truth, of a reality that is not only comforting but is conscripting? A message that doesn't simply give to me but pulls me in under its mandate. 
If we haven't heard the gospel this way, it's fair to say whether we've heard it rightly. Which raises another question. What, what is it that people have against Jesus? You know, Jesus is a very controversial figure and, uh, you know, so controversial that, that we felt like we needed to turn his name into an epithet. Uh, so so just, for, just for that, that shock value. Um, but Jesus is controversial. If you bring up Jesus in conversation, you, you might get a few looks. You might get people sort of, sort of standing back. But honestly, what do people have against Jesus? I mean, really? We're talking about a guy who lived 2,000 years ago who healed people, who cured people, who taught people that the most important thing is to love one another and to love God. <laughs> Real dangerous fellow. <laughs> Honestly, why is he so controversial? It's because he presents himself as an authority. That's why he's controversial. So the big idea this morning is that the gospel provokes a response. The gospel provokes a response. Jesus' authority pushes us to take a public stance. There is no simply leaning on the fence or re remaining uh, uncommitted. That's not an option that Jesus leaves. If you sit and listen to him long enough, if you, if you watch what he does and what he says and you take those things to heart, you can't but respond. Uh, like to read to our children sometimes before they go to bed and we've been reading the Lord of the Rings and there's this great line in the middle of the beginning of the second book, The Two Towers, where the fellowship has been scattered, things are ominous and threatening and Aragorn, who is the promised king and prince, he's looking for those that he's lost and he comes across a group of men a group of riders from, from a kingdom nation that have sort of like Switzerland remained neutral. And as he's speaking to the emissary of that kingdom, he gives that man a message. He says, you may say this to Theoden, son of Thingol, open war lies before him with Sauron or against him. None may live now as they have lived and few shall keep what they call their own. What a great line. Open war lies before him. You might want to remain neutral. You might want to, to, to keep Jesus in the nice, sort of hermetically sealed container where you can sort of go pull him out, look at him, listen to his teaching, get a bit of comfort when you want. But his message and his teaching provokes a response. And so in our understanding of the way of salvation, we need to realize the way of salvation is a way that invites opposition, invites people standing against him. And this is because Jesus' authority is not universally accepted. Which also means if you're trying to weigh the claims of Jesus by the measure of popularity, you'll never find him to be true. If you gauge the authority of Jesus by how many people follow him and how many people accept him, you will never wind up trusting him as a valid messenger because his message will always invite opposition because his authority is not universally accepted. 
Now, the topic in this section is remembering the Sabbath, which is the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath by keeping it holy. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. The Sabbath was instituted not by Moses, but it was actually instituted at creation. You'll recall that God made the heavens and the earth. And on the sixth day, after he made men and women in his image, and he set them in dominion over his creation, he said to them, this is very good. He looked at all that he had made. This is very good. Not just good, very good. And he rested on the seventh day. As Kevin DeYoung in his book on the Ten Commandments uh, pointed out, he said, you know, we measure our days by, by the rotation uh, of the earth. We measure our months roughly by, by the lunar cycle. And we measure our calendar years by our trips around the sun. But where do we get this idea that there's seven days in a week? It's from creation. The seven-day week was instituted by God. And it's amazing how many atheists and how many agnostics and how many people who reject the Christian God still find themselves in his rhythms today. On the seventh day, God rested, and the fourth commandment was that they were to keep that day. Those who were under the covenant of Moses, they were to remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Now, the word Sabbath means really stop, stopping, ceasing. And in part of the judgment on the nation of Israel, when God removed them from the promised land through exile under the hand of the Assyrians and the Babylonians, his instruments in disciplining his people, part of God's judgment against them was that they failed to remember the Sabbath by keeping it holy. And so they were going to be exiled for a period of 70 years. And when God brought them back, those who, who reconstituted the land that God had given them, they took this very seriously and they took this to heart and they said, we need to keep it on to this day. And it became very much an identifying marker of the people of God. So if you kept the Sabbath, you were a part of the people of God. If you didn't keep the Sabbath, you were cut off. You were not a part of his people. In fact, this was so ingrained in their identity that it actually led to their downfall on a number of occasions with other empires. I was reading a book about the history of Jerusalem. And when the Romans were trying to finally, just finally get in and occupy Jerusalem, this is a few uh, decades before Jesus. When the Romans were trying to occupy Jerusalem and they were just trying to, just to get into this city that, that, that was fairly inaccessible, difficult to access, what they finally decided to do was just Start the war on the Sabbath. <laughs> Attack the Jews on the Sabbath. And they wouldn't fight back. And they didn't. And they lost the city. But they would rather keep the Sabbath than take up arms against their opponents. This was so ingrained in who they were as a people. And you need to understand that as the backdrop to these conversations because this isn't people who are just trying to nitpick. This discussion of the Sabbath is not sort of down the list, hidden in the terms and conditions, you know, back page of the warranty. Uh, wh wh where do I find these little details? No, this was like front and center of what it meant to belong to the people of God. That's what's going into this discussion. 
And while this is important to understand the principles of rest and the rhythms, and we'll get to this a little bit, the rhythms that God instituted, what you need to understand is that Jesus is presenting himself as someone who has the authority to interpret what this day means and to enforce and enact it. So, all that to say, in these verses, Luke sets the growing opposition to Jesus by the Pharisees in contrast to the growing allegiance to Jesus by his disciples, 12 of whom are going to be appointed apostles after a prayerful night on the mountain. One way to look at this passage is to see the dividing line which that's been building over the last few verses finally just becomes clear. Where in verse 11 you have Pharisees who are determined in their fury to figure out what they might do to Jesus, which is Luke's polite way of rendering Mark's understanding, which is their plot to kill him. But after that, Jesus immediately takes the initiative to institute his own leadership, the true Israel, by appointing his disciples. If you're still with me here, Jesus is going to assert his unique authority in three provocative ways. He's going to do it first by claiming special precedent, special precedent in Scripture. Then he's going to assert his authority by exercising special prerogative. Prerogative is the ability to do something that nobody else is allowed to do, the authority to do that. And thirdly, he's going to assert his authority by dispensing special privilege. He's going to share that authority out with his disciples. And it's these three assertions of Jesus' unique authority that end up becoming the dividing line between who is with him and who is against him. And it helps us to understand how the gospel provokes a response. Would you pray with me as we get into the text? Father, would you, in your grace, encourage us to understand Jesus and his mission and his ministry for it is the spirit of Jesus who indwells us. Thank you for your love and for your grace. Lord, we are but humble creatures, humbled but with the great privilege of bearing your image. May we be conformed into a truer, more accurate representation of Christ through your work in us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. To set the context, in case you're just jumping into Luke chapter 6, this is what's been going on, and this sort of helps understand the Pharisees' opposition. Jesus began back in Luke chapter 4 with announcing his ministry, inaugurating his ministry by telling the Jews gathered at the synagogue in Capernaum that today, today, the great promise of the Messiah has been fulfilled in your hearing. He was announcing the year of Jubilee, effectively, He was using that language and that motif. And Jubilee was like the Sabbath of Sabbaths. (laughs) When all the Sabbaths need a Sabbath, that's the Jubilee year. And that's the style that Jesus presents his ministry in. And then he would go on to pronounce somebody clean, which is something that a priest was supposed to do. And then he would go on to forgive sins, which they understood something to be God was only supposed to do. And then he would break with tradition by not having his disciples fast the way that the other disciples were fasting. And finally, last week, we saw there's Jesus, and he's dining openly, sharing table fellowship with sinners. And by the time we get to Luke chapter 6 and the Sabbath confrontation, this thing is coming to a head. And Luke is trying to explain to us and to Theophilus exactly how Jesus' ministry was received. 
Jesus, in verses 1 to 5, he claims authority to regulate God's holy day. Jesus is claiming authority to regulate God's holy day. It's a claim to authority. He's announcing to them he has the right to interpret what constitutes lawful activity on the Sabbath. Jesus is interpreting for them what's allowed on the fourth, from the fourth commandment. Follow with me. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and his disciples began to pick some heads of grain, rub them in their hands, and eat the kernels. Some of the Pharisees asked, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? You say, what's at issue here? Is it they're stealing grain? No. The picture is not that they're stealing somebody else's harvest. In fact, it was prescribed under the law of God that you were allowed to glean on the edges of fields. It was a, it was, it was a mercy a concession to the poor. You didn't reap all the way to the end of your block, all the way to the last row. You left some bits at the end so that people who were traveling by, they could pick and take some of the fruit. So the issue is not that Jesus and his disciples are stealing grain. That's not the issue. The issue is that under the classification of their activity, you might be able to stretch it to say they were harvesting or reaping by plucking the heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands to separate the kernel from the husk. Jesus responds by saying, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He appeals to biblical precedent here. And then Jesus is gonna recount it for us. He entered the house of God and taking the consecrated bread, he ate what is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Now, if you're new to the Bible or haven't been in the Old Testament in a while, I'm going to just sort of set this story for you. David was God's chosen king after he rejected King Saul. But there was this period of overlap where Saul was still on the throne, David was anointed, and Saul was persecuting David. David is leading this ragtag group of, of men and their loved ones, this sort of, for, the, 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 this mass of people that he'd sort of gathered to himself, the disenfranchised, and he has these men who are fighting with him and his companions, and David is hungry and his men are hungry, and so they go into the house of the priest, and they eat the bread that's been prepared, which was supposed to be baked once a week on a Sabbath day and put out on the table. So it very well may have been a Sabbath day in David's story. But they eat the bread that was presented to God. And the bread wasn't for anybody to just sort of walk in and eat because they felt hungry. The bread was an offering to God. And the common riffraff weren't allowed to eat it. But Jesus says, hey, do you remember that story where David went in and he, he ate the holy food and he gave that holy food to his friends? Then Jesus said to them, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. So what's he doing here? He is appealing to a unique precedent in scripture. He looks at David and he said, you know, David, he's God's anointed. He was the king, he wasn't a priest. But somehow it was okay for David to take this bread and to give it to his friends because he was the anointed, he was the one of the Lord. 
Now, as this history of Israel unfolded, the promises began to gain momentum regarding who this Messiah would be and the fact that it was going to be the son of David who would bring all of these plans of God to fruition. David himself received a promise that God would build a house for him, specifically a dynasty, a lineage, whereby one of David's descendants would sit on the throne forever. In Isaiah's time, the branch is identified as the son of David. What Jesus is doing here is he's placing himself right in line with the Davidic lineage. He's saying he was anointed. He was allowed to, quote unquote, transgress this law. So the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now the Son of Man is, is a term that can feel a little bit distant for us. A lot of people try to interpret the, the words, the phrase Son of Man today to mean just, just a human being, but it carried more than that. And there's a lot of research you can do into understanding what the Son of Man is. I encourage you to do that. But a key passage is Daniel chapter 7. When Daniel, this great man of God, gets a vision of the future and what things will be. And oftentimes when God reveals his uh, his word to the prophets, it's almost through a telescope. And so they're, they're stretching out time and, and they're peering through time and it kind of gets sort of smushed or collapsed in, into one vision. Well, there's Dave, uh, Daniel, excuse me, Daniel sees a vision of the Son of Man and one like a Son of Man approaches the Ancient of Days. Who's the Ancient of Days? It's God himself. So one like the Son of Man is said to approach the Ancient of Days and the Ancient of Days, God gives absolute ultimate authority to this one like a son of man. Jesus has already referred to himself as the son of man, and here's the second time he uses it, and he says the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. Do you see? He's claiming the authority. Jesus claims authority to define holy rest for us. We're gonna see this more as we get to the end. But the Pharisees are concerned about making sure that they preserve the revelation that they've been given. But Jesus is asserting that his ministry is not simply about, about preserving, it's about restoring. If somebody gives you an old car or, or, or an old uh, broken down piece of equipment. My son Joshua received an old clarinet from a relative recently, and you pull it out of the box, and, and you look at this thing, and you say, wow, this, this used to be something. <laughs> right now, it doesn't look like much, but this used to be something. Now, if you look at that clarinet, and, and you put it back in the box and stick it back in the garage for another 20 years, okay, I guess that's better than throwing it out. But when we took it away, and we sent it away, and someone graciously paid for it to get restored, and it came back to us. You pull this clarinet out of the box, you're like, wow, what a fine instrument. It's been restored. Jesus isn't merely interested in preserving the regulations around the Sabbath. Jesus is interested in getting to the heart of the Sabbath, as Stephen shared in our sermon in Scripture this week. It's like the commandment that says, do not kill you shall not murder. You don't keep the commandment, you shall not murder, by just not murdering. You keep the commandment by loving your neighbor. <laughs> 
Jesus brings the true heart behind the commandment, and so it leaves us asking, what does Jesus understand the Sabbath to be? Paul would go on to explain how we're not to judge one another on the keeping of holy days. The church actually shifted from making the, the, the seventh day the focus point of worship, the Saturday, and they made it Sunday, the eighth day, or the first day of the week is the point of worship. And I loved how Kevin DeYoung explained this in terms of what this means to us, for Jesus to define holy rest. He restores what is good. This is what Kevin DeYoung says. He says, there's always something else you need to do to show the world that you're worth something, that you're valuable, loved, and okay. And in contrast with Jesus, you don't have to earn anything. You don't have to prove anything. The world does not depend on you. Your salvation does not depend on you. In an ultimate sense, your family does not even depend on you. Can you hear the sweet voice of Jesus say, come to me and I will give you rest? Take him at his word. Believe him, trust him, run to him, and then every resurrection day give expression to what you believe by giving him praise and giving yourself a break. We rest not because we need to establish our own righteousness, but because Jesus has already established our righteousness through his work on the cross and resurrection. That's what frees me to rest. I rest every day of the week in the grace of God because that is secure. And when I rest weekly and mirror the rhythm of stopping, it's not in order to earn my righteousness, but it's in order to reflect the reality of a restored creation, a restored life. It's a way of saying I trust God and it doesn't depend on me. We could go into a whole message on Sabbath theology and how we apply it today. You're probably interested in that, but the text pushes us forward. <laughs> Verses six to 11. We see not only does Jesus claim authority, but Jesus exercises authority to reveal God's purposes. So it was one thing for Jesus to say, I'm allowed to tell you what's okay and what's not okay on the Sabbath. It's another thing for Jesus to actually use that authority. And that's what he does here. Notice the, the power conflict. And it's all designed around Jesus revealing God's purpose and his mission. On another Sabbath, Luke says, he went into a synagogue and was teaching and a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. Having a shriveled hand was not a life-threatening illness. That's important because at the time, in their understanding of Sabbath law, you were allowed to save a life on the Sabbath. If it was life-threatening, you could save a life. But if you had a cough or a cold or a sniffle or, or a withered hand, come back tomorrow. It's not a life-threatening disease. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. This is important. They've made their judgment and now they're ready to enforce the punishment. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. But Jesus knew there was what they were thinking and said to the man with the shriveled hand, get up and stand in front of everyone. So he got up and stood there. Okay. <laughs> this is where, if this was a Western, you'd have that, you know, that whistling tune. <laughs> I'm not going to do it for you. But when they step into the, they step into the streets, you know, Jesus is provoking a confrontation 
He tells the man to get up. Then Jesus takes the initiative. I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it. Notice Jesus doesn't leave a third category. You're doing good or you're doing evil. In fact, he ramps it up to save life or to destroy it. You want to talk about the Sabbath and the purpose, Jesus says, what is the purpose? The purpose is not merely stopping. He looks around at them all. You can feel Jesus' gaze just piercing everyone in the room. And he says to the man, stretch out your hand. Now for the man, he has to make a choice. Is he going to respond in faith here? What's he going to do? Is he going to stretch out this withered hand? He does. And his hand is completely restored. Jesus didn't bend into the dirt, apply a balm. He didn't do anything other than speak to the man. The man extended his hand and he was healed. And yet, the Pharisees respond in fury. The Pharisees and teachers of the law were furious, began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. The word here is, is a, a, a bewildering kind of madness. It, it, it's, an in, it's an incomprehensible rage. You ever just been like blind angry? You just, you just lose control? That's the, that's the picture here. Jesus' actions are so incomprehensible to them that their only response is to act and act in a way that puts a stop to Jesus. They determine this man cannot continue doing what he is doing. They choose their side. But I want you to understand how Jesus looks at what he's doing. You see, if the mindset is, well, we, we just need to keep this Sabbath command and we just need to make sure that we don't do anything that might even come close to controverting this. That's the mindset of a legalist. A legalist performs their duties because they understand that it's their performance that establishes their right standing before God. And so to a legalist, to fail to conform to the duty or to the expectation is to effectively condemn yourself. And the Pharisees are never going to do that, and they can't accept anybody who would do that. But Jesus doesn't see himself doing that at all. And in fact, you can make a very strong argument that Jesus, and this is, I believe, what's behind his actions here, Jesus is showing the true purpose of Sabbath. Think about it this way. When did God rest? Day what? Come on. Seventh day, right? He rested on the seventh day. After he finished all his work, right? And what was the last thing God said before he rested? This is very good. And then the fall happened. Is this very good? Is man with a shriveled hand good? A man who can't work 
Traditions in the early church were that this man was a stonemason. We can't really verify it. It's outside the New Testament. But that was the tradition. This man was a stonemason. So here's a guy with a shriveled hand. So yes, there's a deformity and everything that, that comes along with that. But more importantly, he couldn't work. He's been pushed to the margins of society. And these Pharisees want Jesus to not restore him. And Jesus, his mentality is, no, 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 no. I'm going to bring the restoration on the Sabbath day so that this guy can be good again and he can be restored. And that is true rest. Jesus is revealing the purposes of God. He exercises authority to restore the good to God's creation. Now the beauty is that this has happened fully and finally through the cross and resurrection so that spiritually Paul can tell a group of believers in Ephesus that you are already blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. Spiritually, the restoring of the good is over and done. It is finally complete. You're not lacking anything. You have crossed from death to life. Your name's written in the book of life. Your passport is stamped, citizen of the kingdom of heaven. That's where you belong. Everything that belongs to Christ, you become a co-heir with him, and that is yours, and you are a rightful owner of all of these blessings. Spiritually. Physically, it's not there yet. But Jesus is showing what his ministry is about. That's what all this, Jesus' ministry in Galilee, the calling of disciples, all of this, Jesus is trying to explain to God's people Israel, this is what it looks like for me to redeem. And so redemption is not merely just preserving the old. It's restoring what was lost. Thirdly, finally, Jesus not only claims his authority, he not only exercises his authority, but here he shares his authority. Notice, after this, Luke juxtaposes the, the, the definitive response of the Pharisees to rebel against Jesus. He puts right next to it the account of Jesus choosing his apostles. Notice how he does it. One of these days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray. Before, he would go to desolate places. He would be in the wilderness, but here, he goes to a mountain. Again, very fitting. Moses went up the mountain to speak with God, to initiate people into the covenant. Jesus goes up the mountain to pray, to discern. He prays all night praying to God. And when the morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them. That's not by accident. In choosing 12, Jesus is pulling on a very significant number in the history of God's people. First and foremost, the number 12 represents those children of Israel, the, the full complement of God's people the 12 tribes, the nation, the representatives of God's people throughout the history of, of Israel, when they needed to advance in a new work, they would often pick 12. So when they go to scout out the promised land, they pick 12. 
one representative from each tribe to investigate this land of promise that God was bringing them into. When they come back to the land after exile and, and, and leaders like Ezra and Nehemiah are appointing people to lead, they appoint 12. Luke doesn't want it to be lost on you or on Theophilus that Jesus despite his rejection of those who were meant to be leading his people. The Pharisees had positioned themselves as the spiritual leaders of Israel. And here they've rejected him. And right after that, Jesus goes on a mountain to pray. He gets revelation from God. And then he chooses his 12. He's bringing in new leadership. You say... Does he have authority to do that? <laughs> yep. And it doesn't just pick them like you might pick your favorite sports team or pick your favorite group. He actually makes them apostles. He designates them apostles. An apostle is an envoy. It was actually a military term initially. Somebody who had the authority to act on behalf of of the one who'd sent them. And so the apostles, even though they haven't done anything yet, really, all James and John have done is leave things behind. <laughs> but Jesus has already appointed them to be his envoys, his leaders. We're given the list of the 12. There's four lists of the apostles in the New Testament. Matthew gives us a list, Mark gives us a list, and then Luke gives us two lists. He gives us one in this gospel and he gives one in the book of Acts. Famously, little is known about most of these men. We just don't know much about them. We know their names, we know their role, but we don't hear much more of them in the New Testament. And yet they were Jesus' representatives. We're told that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and of the prophets. With Jesus Christ as the cornerstone, these would lay the foundations for the church that you're a part of today. And I don't know about you, but how tempting would it have been to leave that 12th apostle off the list? We're told that uh, Jesus shared his authority even though a traitor was among them. All the gospels and all the lists still include Judas as the one who was numbered among the apostles of Jesus. You know, in our day and age, we like to Hide the bad stuff. You know, what do we say? Lift up the rug, get out the broom, and sweep it under the rug. <laughs> but the early church didn't do that. I suspect there's two things going on. One thing, there, there's a recognition that, no, this is one that Jesus chose. And this was part of the fulfillment of what God had planned throughout all of Scripture. But there's another sense in which it's a reminder to us that the opposition to Jesus, while certainly out there, it can also be in here. It's 
Stephen was sharing with me this week, the origin of this word traitor and how the word we use traitor has its roots in the history of the early church when the Roman persecution was incredibly intense and the, some believers were forced to choose between living and recanting their faith or professing their faith and going to the sword or to the, to the lions or, or whatnot. And a lot of people at that point in time they recanted their confession. They say, actually, no, I, I, I don't believe in Jesus. He is not Lord. Caesar is Lord. There was a number of Christians who did that. But then an interesting thing happened because the Roman emperor got converted. And Christianity suddenly became the state religion. And there was all these people who had recanted their faith previously who were then showing up at the church, and the church was faced with a decision. What do we do with them? It's interesting to read historically how they wrestled with that. But I'm out of time, so I'm not going to go into what they did. But the word traitor comes from their understanding of the exchange that these people had made. They had traded in. They had traded in Christ. They had traded in the word of God for their lives. Much like Judas, who later in this gospel is going to trade in the Messiah for 30 pieces of silver. You see, that's what a traitor is, someone who exchanges something that should be held on to. They give it up. And so we marvel because the gospel provokes a response and opposition very much is out there, but it also can be in here. And so it's worth us asking, how do we hear the gospel? Do I hear this as the word of the authoritative son of man? Or is this just something I'm going to try for a while? <laughs> I heard about a guy this week who was contemplating going into the ministry and actually was quite far along in the process. And it's relayed to me that his words were, well, you know, I'm just going to give this a go and see if it works out. And I, I, I sort of chuckled. I was like... <laughs> Ministry is not the thing you want to just try for a while and see if it works out. But it's also sad. Because of what was missing. There's a miss, what was missing was this, this conviction, the same conviction Paul had when he said, the love of Christ compels me. Paul who would say, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. The sense that Jeremiah had that this is a fire that's been, that's been set within my bones and if, if, I don't, if I don't respond, if I don't let this out, I'm going to be consumed by it. How do we hear the gospel? In conclusion, I just want you to remember this. Jesus came to restore what was lost, not simply to preserve what was left. May this be a comfort to you. May it be an encouragement to you. I'm not sure what you've lost. I'm not sure what's been taken from you. I'm not sure what things you came into this world lacking, whether that was good parents or, or uh, uh, an able body. I, I, I'm not sure what has been lost, but know that Jesus came to restore. 
What I do know is, first and foremost, the thing that we had all lost was our soul. And if you feel like you don't know where your soul is, you can't find it, you don't know what it is, go to Jesus. Because he can restore that. And a whole lot else. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for your love for us. May you bless us and encourage us this week. Help us to walk in the power and under the authority of Jesus. Would you strengthen us for the task that you've given us? Or may we not be Judases who are content to sit in the fellowship, but whose hearts have been held by something else. May we love you and serve you. In Jesus' name, amen.